Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. One very quick note. On Monday, we posted our podcast with Chef Jose Andres from Ukraine. And because we got so many requests, on, on Tuesday, we posted a link to the World Central Kitchen for Bulwark listeners and readers to contribute to what the chef is doing in Ukraine and around the world. And I think our original goal was $3,000, and then we'd raise it to $5,000. Uh, as of Right now, Bulwark listeners and readers have contributed more than $122,000 to what Chef Jose is doing. And really, we only had links in a couple of our newsletters, so I am very appreciative. Uh, you people are absolutely fantastic. So on today's podcast, on our weekend podcast, we are uh, very fortunate to be joined by Anne Applebaum, who is a staff writer, of course, for The Atlantic and recently returned from Ukraine, where she interviewed President Zelensky. So first of all, Anne, uh, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. And I want to talk to you about your time, uh, you and Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, who's The Atlantic's uh, editor-in-chief, uh, sitting down with Zelensky in Ukraine. What an amazing experience. But I'm looking at a, at a tweet, since we learn everything from Twitter, at least for now, from a chief advisor in President Zelensky's office. Uh, I think his last name is pronounced Podoliak, mm -hmm. who tweeted out like five minutes ago, Two months ago, one thought of banning Russia from SWIFT made people laugh. A month ago, requests to provide heavy weapons were met with resistance, but you know, President Zelensky and others have found words for each. Gratitude to all the friends of Ukraine who made this possible. And then he reminded people, you know, speak at the Munich conference back on February 18th, President Zelensky said, we need a lend lease. Now it has become a reality. Next a full oil embargo and Russia's inclusion in the list of countries sponsoring terrorism, Moscow will face total economic isolation. So I wanted to get your reaction to finally the Ukrainians think, okay, you know, what we have been asking for is actually happening. Give me your sense of whether or not that aid has been adequate for the moment. When we were in Kiev, which is about two weeks ago now, um, it was pretty clear at that time that there was a gap between what Kiev thought was happening and what Washington thought was happening. In yes. other words, Americans were patting themselves on the back that we're delivering all this stuff to Ukraine. And the Ukrainians were saying, um, it's not getting here fast enough. It's not high enough quality. It's not the heavy weapons that we need to fight the Russian army in Donbass. Um, my impression is, and this is based on conversations and, and news reports and um, you know information like what you just read out, is that the last two weeks have been a kind of turning point in which something clicked. Finally, the U.S. suddenly thought, right, this is a real war. It's going to last a long time. And we have to be arming the Ukrainians in the way they need. And decisions were made to release levels and types of weapons that had not been released before. And so there is a shift. There is a speeding up of the process. More things are being delivered. I mean, it may well be that two things can be simultaneously true, namely, that this is a totally unprecedented effort to help another country, one that you really do have to go back to Lend-Lease, which was the mm -hmm. U.S. aid to the U.K., to, to Great Britain during the Second World War to find a precedent. There's very few things that you can point to in between those things, maybe the Berlin airlift that are any kind of equivalent. Um, so that is true. It may also simultaneously be true that the Ukrainians still feel that things aren't arriving quickly enough and that they aren't quite getting what they need. It is an unprecedented aid effort. 
And there are all kinds of logistic complications. There was initially, I think, some trust issues between the Ukrainian military and the U.S. military that have now been overcome. But it's happening almost as fast as it could possibly be happening right now. So you have written about this and thought about this for many years. And just for the listener's benefit, you know, your books include, you know, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, then the Pulitzer Prize winning Gulag, a history. And most recently, your book, Twilight of Democracy. This is the question that I've really been wanting to ask you. You wrote about the Twilight of Democracy. You had a piece in The Atlantic a few months ago before the war suggesting that the authoritarians were winning, that democracy was in retreat. Have you changed your perspective on that since the world rallied around Ukraine? Well, a part of the world has rallied around Ukraine. Europe and North America and some of the Asian democracies have rallied around Ukraine, but not everybody has rallied around Ukraine. Uh, The Chinese have not, the Indians have not, much of Africa has not, for example. And I think we would be wrong to underestimate the degree to which Chinese and even Russian influence still matter in large parts of the world. The the rhetoric and language of democracy and indeed the practice of democracy are still seen as threats by a large number of the world's rulers. And the point of that article was really to sketch out something that I don't think people have paid attention to much yet, which is the way in which the autocracies, none of whom are part of an ideological coalition. I mean, this is not the Cold War. There's no Soviet bloc. But countries as disparate as Iran and Venezuela and Belarus and Russia and China are working together in some ways. They help one another evade sanctions. They share techniques in terms of suppression and surveillance. They learn from one another. They use one another's experiences. They have the feeling they're fighting similar problems, namely democracy activism inside their own countries um, and pressure from the democratic world outside their countries. And I I still think that despite the amazing effort that has been made in this war, I still think that neither the U.S. government nor most European governments have really come to terms with the nature of that alliance and the way it changes the world that we live in. Our idea that somehow, you know, democracy was the default position and that's Mm -hmm. the system that everybody would eventually want. I mean, that's clearly not been true for some time, but it's really not true now, now that we have autocracy is starting, and Russia's not alone. Russia's the most aggressive right now. But uh, there, there are other countries around the world that are interested in imposing autocracy on, certainly on their own citizens, but also on their neighbors. And we don't really have a way of thinking about that in a comprehensive manner yet. So you've written extensively about uh, the rise of the populist, nationalist authoritarians in Europe, in countries like Hungary and Poland. I am struck, and I wanted to get your explanation, why those two countries diverged. There was a time when we thought that Poland was headed in the same direction as uh, Viktor Orban's Hungary. And yet, while Orban continues to be a Putin ally, the Poles have gone in a very, very different direction. Just give me your thoughts on on the significance of that. So I'm going to try and give you a nuanced answer. Most of the answer is that in terms of Polish foreign policy and the Polish turn towards NATO, Most of that is a reflection of Polish history and Poland's fear that they are next. The sequence of events in Ukraine reminded a lot of people in Poland of 1939 when their country was invaded and partitioned and when nobody helped them. And the impulse to help Ukraine and do something for Ukraine is so widespread that millions of ordinary people have had Ukrainian refugees living in their homes, including myself and most people that I know in Poland. 
So it was really a popular upswelling of feeling that made sure that Polish foreign policy was going to be pro-NATO and anti-Russian. Just to add a nuance, some of the internal things that the Polish ruling party was doing in terms of politicizing the courts and um, trying to undermine independent media have not stopped. Mm -hmm. And I don't expect them to stop. And there's some fear that the current government will try to now evade criticism and some of the sanctions that were coming from the European Union on the grounds that, you know, look what Mm -hmm. we're doing for the war. You know, you have to let us go ahead in imposing autocracy inside the country. So I'm not sure that that story is over yet. But it's true that the mostly because of the popular feeling in Poland that the government had really no choice but to behave as it did. Hungary is, first of all, several steps further down the road towards autocracy. There was a recent election in Hungary, which I never believed Mm -hmm. Viktor Orban could lose. The ruling party simply controls too much of everything, the media, the business community, influence in local governments and over local officials. You know, people can't imagine anymore what an alternative to Orban would look like. Um, and so so they're further down the road. Orban himself, you know, he's done this balancing act where he some of his sort of bribery money and slush funds come from Russia and some come from the EU. And he's his party is certainly deeply involved in corrupt business relationships with Russia. So their reaction to this and their refusal to, you know, certainly to join any mass sanctions doesn't surprise me. Now, I apologize in advance for this because I know you've been asked about this and talked about this endlessly, but your experience in the last several weeks was truly extraordinary. You and Jeffrey Goldberg went to Ukraine and you met with President Zelensky. So stepping back from just the policy, can you just tell me about, to set the scene for me of what it was like meeting him and what your take is? Because I think he's just one of the most extraordinarily interesting figures that we have seen, a comedian actor becoming president almost as a joke and then rising to this historic moment. So give me your sense. Uh, Who is Volodymyr Zelensky? In our interview, we some of what we talked about with him was was along the same lines that other other discussions that he's had. I mean, the reason he wanted to do the interview is he's trying to particularly this was two weeks ago. He was still trying to reach Washington to get across the message that what he was seeing around him was not the same thing that the Americans were seeing, that there was this difference in perceptions. Some of the interview, though, we did get him to talk about other subjects. And he's somebody who reveals himself. He's very deeply steeped in Western pop culture, um, whether it's (laughs) a reference to Groundhog Day and feeling like Bill Murray repeating himself over and over again, um, whether it's, you know, Monty Python, with which he was intimately familiar. I mean, this actually didn't make it into the written interview, but there was a kind of back and forth about, do you remember the African swallow joke from... (laughs) Um, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jeff made a reference to it and Zelensky was instantly familiar with it. And he's somebody who's thought a lot about satire and politics. I mean, he's often described as a comedian, but he was really a satirist and he was a specifically political satirist. And that means that he's someone who thought a lot about politics and about how to reach people through humor and to make political points using humor. And he spoke about that, but even if you go and look at his past work, especially his famous television series, Servant of the People, you can see it. A lot of that series... I found that endlessly interesting watching that series. It is amazing. So there are a lot of interesting nuances about it. And one of them is that he plays a kind of almost Soviet-era everyman, like Mm -hmm. a little guy standing up to these big forces 
he mocks the Ukrainian over-respect for power and authority. Mm -hmm. He makes fun of oligarchs and oligarchy. And all of that was deliberate. And I think he was elected for that reason because people identified with him. And of course, he was therefore easy to underestimate because, you know, he was just a comedian. But he was a comedian who'd thought a lot about politics and thought a lot about political communication. And it's clear that when the war started, he immediately understood that his most important role was that of a communicator. So he isn't actually running the war in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, some world leaders run the war and they tell their generals what to do. The generals are running the war. He is sees his role, you know, twofold role. One is to communicate directly with the West and on this question of weapons. And the second role is to help change the image of Ukraine in the eyes of the world from a kind of pathetic, disorganized, really corrupt country to a country that has a very clear national idea and that believes in a a form of civic patriotism. So it's not about ethnic Ukrainian nationality. It's about a broader idea of Ukrainianness, which is tied up with ideas about democracy and the rule of law. And he's very clear about what that is. And I should say, you know, when you actually meet him, he's he's like his television persona in real life or his, his servant of the people persona in that he's very relaxed. He's very funny. I mean, he wasn't telling jokes, but he's he makes sardonic comments. He walks in the room and sort of complains that his back hurts, which is not what Vladimir Putin would do. No, I like the part where you write the, the sort of an anti-Putin rather than telegraphing a cold-eyed murderous superiority. He wants people to understand him as an every man, a middle-aged dad with a bad back. Yes. I mean, and that's <laughs> and that works because people immediately identify with him. We saw several of my Ukrainian friends on the day after the interview, and they all said that. They said he he sounds like us. He's saying things that we all believe. And so he has an excellent sense of what it is that Ukrainians want to hear. He sometimes is a little awkward. I think not all of his international communications have been as good, but, you know, they're they're catching up fast. You know, they read articles about Austria on the Internet at, at night before they make their speech to the Austrian parliament or to the Greek mm-hmm. parliament or whichever parliament it is. So they're, they're catching up fast. But his understanding of his own audience, I think, is superb. Well, it is interesting. You, you, you mentioned his uh, his pop culture reference where, you know, he's he's frustrated by his repeated requests and, and, and his language is very pointed. I mean, as as sardonic and laid back as he might be, his messages are very, very pointed. And he says, when some leaders ask me what weapons I need, I need a moment to calm myself because I already told them the week before it's Groundhog Day. I feel like Bill Murray. When you quote him as saying, look, can you give it to us? We could just we can fly our own cargo planes and pick it up. I mean, he's grateful. But when you spoke to his staff at the time, this was two weeks ago, they were confused about the pace of the Biden administration's moves. They couldn't figure out what they were doing. Yes. And I should say they do stress that all of their conversations, especially with Biden, but, you know, with everybody else, with with Tony Blinken, with Jake Sullivan are all excellent, friendly, to the point, businesslike. They don't feel that anybody's, there's no conspiracy theory. I mean, nobody's running them around and they don't suspect anybody of having alternative motives. But there is just a difference between their perception of time and Washington's perspective of time. And we're, we're working nine to five days and we take the weekends off and they really don't. I think a lot of it, some of it was that. Again, my impression, which might be superficial, but my impression is that literally in the last week, the pace of delivery has sped up and the nature of the weapons we're delivering has changed. And we are now giving them heavy weapons. We're also now training Ukrainians to use, um, you know, NATO style U.S. weapons 
outside of Ukraine. And so there's beginning to be a faster. I mean, I think the one thing that hasn't happened yet is the delivery of airplanes. Right. And that might become a bigger concern within the next days and weeks, too. But but we are certainly giving them heavy artillery. So one of the things that I'm interested in getting your take on is he has clearly risen to the moment. Uh, he is rallying the world to the side of Ukraine. He is sounding the alarms. What do you make of the fact, though, that for the weeks before the war, actually before Munich, where he did sound the alarm, that the U.S. government was saying an invasion is imminent, you need to prepare, and it was Zelensky who seemed to be saying, guys, this is not anything extraordinary. It's not going to happen. People need to calm down. We've lived with this before. What do you make of that? Was that just a public posture that he was not sounding the alarm or that he was sounding, you know, a, a different note than than the United States was? So I, I do think that in the long light of history, when the story of this war is written a decade from now, he will be criticized for having not prepared the country for the war. Hmm. I, I actually went to Kiev in December at the time when these warnings were becoming more dire. And the although I did hear some people who thought war was possible, the general view was that, first of all, they're doing this in order to pressure us in some way. And number two, they can't possibly want to occupy and invade all of Ukraine because, okay, they have 120, I can't remember the number now, 150,000 troops around our border, but that's not enough to occupy Ukraine. It's a very large country. And then the third element was, we can't believe the Russians would really do that because we know them too long and we have cousins who live in Moscow. And I think actually, in a certain sense, they were right. The Russians didn't have enough troops, as the subsequent invasion showed. And so they were partly genuinely confused by the fact that the Russians were underprepared. Hmm. They misunderstood Putin's intentions. I mean, as it turned out, the army was better prepared than we knew. Mm-hmm. And this has been explained to me that the army actually has been thinking about this kind of invasion and the possibility of this kind of invasion for eight years. So since 2014, and they practiced various scenarios and they'd thought about what they would do if there was an invasion from several sides and there was a plan for how to react and so on. So the army was better prepared. I would say the civilian population was not well prepared. People, there was real shock and people weren't expecting this level of attack. Maybe that was a mistake. But as I said, combination of they can't possibly want to do this because they don't have enough troops here, which was true. And just the inability to believe that Russians whom they've known and worked with all their lives, including Zelensky, whose production company had an office in Moscow at one point, it was very hard for them to believe that people they know and work with and had interchanges with all of their lives were going to launch this kind of brutal invasion. Well, and, and of course, these kinds of miscalculations can be very, very deadly. It's a reminder, though, that the people who are right there living it in real time did not believe it was actually going to happen. And I want to talk to you about your new piece, though, uh, which is uh, really chilling watching the rhetoric that's coming out. You have a piece online and in the Atlantic's June issue, Ukraine and the words that lead to mass murder. And I want to dive into that right after this. A quick shout out to our Bulwark Plus family who helped to keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable with their paid memberships. Thank you. We couldn't do all this without you. And for those of you who haven't given Bulwark Plus membership a try, take the next 30 days to see if membership is right for you. With this free trial offer, you'll get our emailed newsletters daily and member-only podcasts and also ad-free versions of this and other Bulwark podcasts. You can choose what you want to receive in your inbox and the rest is accessible via our website. 
please try a Bulwark Plus membership free for the next 30 days. Just go to thebulwark.com slash Charlie. We're back with Ann Applebaum from The Atlantic, uh, her new piece uh, in The Atlantic, Ukraine and the Words That Lead to Mass Murder. Uh, you connect the dots um, very effectively between the Russian dehumanization of Ukrainians back during the man-made famines in the 1930s, which, by the way, most people have forgotten about, and what's happening today. So let's just talk a little bit about what happened in the winter of 1932 and 33, when you had Communist Party, you know, apparatchiks go house to house in the Ukrainian countryside pillaging for food. I mean, this is not the first time that we've had a massive humanitarian disaster in Ukraine. What happened back in the 30s? So this was a carefully organized removal of food. So it wasn't a drought. It didn't happen because of a bad harvest, although there were, you know, this was a time of collectivization when there was great upheaval in all across the Soviet Union and agriculture, and there was a lot of hunger everywhere. But in the midst of that chaos, um, there were activists who went through parts of Ukraine, went house to house, and simply confiscated everything that was there, grain, vegetables, livestock, anything in storage, anything they could find. And they took, they had special, these long rods they would use to poke up chimneys to see if people had hidden grain. And they removed the food from whole villages and whole parts of the countryside. And the result was a horrible famine. Four million people died? Four million people. That's the best estimate that we can get based on demographic information. Four there was no million. calculation of it at the time. In fact, the statistics were, were covered up for many years. Um, but there's a huge drop in population in Ukraine that happens. I mean, that's a that's a Ukrainian holocaust. They call it the Holodomor, yeah. which is actually not a word that is related to holocaust. Mm. It comes from the Ukrainian word for hunger and the Ukrainian word for death or famine and for death. But Holodomor is, in Ukraine is a well-understood word and concept. It's a it wasn't an attempt to destroy every Ukrainian, and, and there were even some Ukrainians involved in these activist brigades, but it was a response to mass discontent in Ukraine. The Ukrainians had fought back sometimes with weapons against collectivization, against the Soviet regime, and it was an attempt to suppress and control the peasant population. And it is true that in the wake of the famine, over the next several decades, Russians moved into many of the territories where lots of people had died. And it was also a part of the Russification of Ukraine. So it was an attempt to suppress, undermine Ukrainian peasantry. And I should say that it was followed immediately by the mass arrests of Ukrainian intellectuals, writers, artists, historians, you know, people who wrote dictionaries, even the Ukrainian Communist Party. And so that there was this kind of double attack on Ukraine, both on the intellectual class and also on the peasants. It was really the Sovietization, Russification of Ukraine. And it didn't succeed completely because Ukraine in 1991 had recreated its national movement and was able to apply for and then gain independence from the Soviet Union and gain its final status as a sovereign country. But this earlier attempt, that was probably the first attempt to wipe out Ukraine as a nation. One of the big questions, of course, that I think a lot of people you know, ask when they see the, the, the horrors, what's happening now, um, is how, how do people... How do people live with them? So how do they, what is the motivation for this kind of cruelty, our capacity for cruelty? And, and as you point out in your piece, the people who were starving the Ukrainians who were perpetrating this didn't feel guilty at all because Soviet propaganda had, it had told them that these people were enemies, they were saboteurs, you know, the, the rich landowners, you know, preventing the proletariat from achieving their utopia. So 
there were real consequences to convincing people that these were parasites, they were flies, and and that their food should be given to the working class. I mean, so you, they had prepared the way for this very elaborately through words and images. And talk to me about that and, and how that's happening again. Yeah, so in the 1930s and now, there was a long run-up to these genocidal events. In the 1930s, there was a years of portrayal of so-called kulaks, meaning rich peasants, but really it just meant anybody who was anti-Soviet peasants as enemies of the people. They were preventing progress. You know, we have the Soviet Union is failing because the peasants are holding us back. They're a historical anomaly. They're a throwback. If we could eliminate them, then we would have our Soviet utopia that we've all been promised. And that was drummed into people's heads for a decade. And that was part of what motivated the people who did these collections. And it was part of why one or two people wrote about this in later years. You know, they said, you know, I didn't see it at the time, but I see it now. You know, I didn't see that what we were doing was murdering poor people. I thought that we were doing something great for the Soviet fatherland. And that is very similar to what's happened in Russia also over the last eight years. There has been a deliberate attempt to show the West as degenerate, as divisive, as violent, as dangerous, and to show that Ukraine is a puppet of that violent, dangerous, degenerate West. And Ukraine is a fake state. There are no real Ukrainians. These are just Western agents, and they're a danger to, to Mother Russia. They are, they're blocking our path to greatness. They're parasites who have to be wiped out. And you can hear that same kind of language in the language that some of the Russian soldiers use, some that we've now heard reported to us from people who experienced the Russian occupation mm. north of Kiev. Some you know, Russian soldiers are either they steal Ukrainian phones or they illicitly use ordinary SIM cards to call people back home. And we hear some of these conversations, the Ukrainians have recorded them, and they they say things back and forth to one of the, you know, the wives say to their husbands, you know, steal us some good stuff, mm. you know, make sure you kill lots of people down there, just be careful yourself. And the the attitude is unbelievably cruel. And again, it comes from the perspective of people who don't see that these are humans. You know, these are inhumans, you can wipe wow. them out. We don't need to feel any sense of guilt. And that propaganda has been drummed into people's heads for many years. I'm sure it's 10 times worse inside the Russian army, even than it is on state television. Yeah. And you make this point, the Russian state's ability to disguise the reality from its citizens and then dehumanize its enemies has gotten even greater than it was during the 1930s. And the state-run television, I follow online some of the things that people are saying on state-run television. I mean, that is the primary source of information for most Russians now. And they seem to be actually escalating their rhetoric, if anything. They are escalating their rhetoric. They regularly talk about nuking the West, about World War III. This started out as a, as a small conflict. You know, we're just going to eliminate some threat to the Russians who live in Donbass. And they're now talking about an open war against the whole West. You know, and I don't know. I don't have enough of a sense of what ordinary Russians see and think in an increasingly totalitarian and certainly autocratic state. There is no such thing as public opinion because people aren't allowed to have different opinions. And so it's very hard to say how they perceive all this. But certainly it looks like an attempt to prepare Russians for a much broader conflict. 
Well, you also make a very interesting point, and I'm certainly not providing any sort of excuses, but back in the 1930s, they had dehumanized, obviously, the Ukrainians. But at least the Russian state was was able to present the Communist Party activists with some sort of a utopia, that, that if you do these things, we can build this worker's paradise. And you point out that the Russian state's no longer offering any sort of utopian vision. They only want cynicism and passivity. It's very different, isn't it? I mean, the consequences are the same, but it, it's a shift. Yeah. yeah, it's a very important distinction. So whereas the Soviet Union was promoting a positive idea and here's what we're trying to build and there was a whole ideology attached to it, the Russian state isn't trying to build anything. They simply want people to be disoriented and to be apathetic. So very often they pump out very different kinds of messages. The the classic example is when MH17, that Malaysian plane crashed over Eastern Ukraine in 2014. Literally sometimes the same news announcers would give different explanations for the crash at different times of day. Hmm. And the point was to make people feel like, oh, well, we're never going to know what happened. It's too Mm -hmm. confusing to understand what happened. I mean, the reality was that the plane was shot down by by Russian soldiers. But the the idea is to create a world in which no one can know anything. You would never have any idea what's true. And therefore, there's no point in opposing the system because you don't know what the alternative could be. I mean, maybe Putin is telling the truth. Maybe TV is right. Maybe it's not. But how would you know? What's your basis for objecting if you don't have any a full explanation of what happened. And so it is a deliberate attempt to undermine any sense of truthfulness at all, and also even any sense of values. I mean, there's there's nothing to fight for. There's nothing to want. Democracy is degenerate. There's no alternative political system that's better than ours. Ours might be terrible. Maybe you don't like it, but there's nothing else available to you. There's no idealism that you can comfort yourself with. As you point out, the state TV doesn't tell local stories. You know, they're talking about America, France, Britain, Sweden, Poland, uh, the degeneracy, the hypocrisy, the Russophobia, how chaotic Europe is. The Europeans are weak and moral. EU is aggressive and interventionist. And then, as you point out, their portrayal of America is even worse. They are obsessed with our culture wars, right? They devote a huge amount of time to the American people, American politics. They love the anti-anti-Putin folks on American media, and they're fed this, this constant diet of how just awful the West is. So they have succeeded in creating an alternative reality for the Russian people. They have. And actually, you know, your point about their use of the American media is very important. They quote and cite Tucker Carlson, Candace Owen, you know, anybody who will say pro-Russian things on television in the United States eventually makes their way onto Russian television, too. And so they're trying to build a picture of America, again, as degenerate, as divided, as obsessed with sexuality or violence. And there are only a few voices there who are sensible. And here is Tucker Carlson. And so, yes, there's a lot of discussion of America. I mean, for me, the <laughs> there was an extraordinary moment a couple of weeks ago when Putin himself at a press conference made a reference to J.K. Rowling and an argument about trans rights that she's been involved in. And I thought, you know, what kind of obsession with culture wars does the president of Russia have to have in order even to know that? You know, what U.S. politician could speak about a culture war inside Russia to that extent? I mean, maybe they should be able to, but doesn't have anything better to do or better to think about. And this is a this is a really important obsession with them. You know, they participate in our culture wars. They have their their people and their bots and so on that are involved in it, but also it's part of their own propaganda now too. 
I'm surprised that Putin isn't talking about drag queen story hours. I mean, he's he's so deeply involved in all of that. And as you point out, I mean, the, the real problem here is that this is the culmination of years spent preparing Russians to not have any pity at all for the Ukrainians, to convince them that they aren't even human, that they're Nazis. And this is what is so dangerous. So I saw this morning that you tweeted, there was a report that hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are being rounded up and deported to Russia. And you raised the question, is this 1937 or today? And it, it really does have that, that feel, that echo. It, it's haunting, especially because we had told ourselves so many times, never again. And, and there it is right now in real time. So I have to tell you that for me, I spent years writing books about Soviet history. I wrote a book about the Gulag. I also wrote a book, which is really relevant, about the Sovietization of Eastern Europe mm -hmm. after the war. This is when the Red Army marched into Central Europe and took it over and made all those countries into Soviet satellite states, communist states. And I have to tell you, the tactics that they're using now are exactly the same tactics that they used then. It's the same, you know, shoot the mayors, round people up into filtration camps, deport them to Russia, make everybody else work. You know, there are some places where they're making people work as slave laborers on behalf of the Russian army. It's the same tactics, it's the same techniques. And it's it's not an accident because they read their own history. I'm sure the Russian army reads the history of the Red Army. The FSB reads the history of the KGB and the NKVD. And what they're doing is taking out old playbooks and old tactics and using them again. And for me, it's chilling. I wrote those books because I thought they were books about the past, and I did not think I was writing books about the future. And it's proof, if more were needed, that the Russians, at least, learned no lessons from the collapse of the Soviet Union. You're an expert on this, but does part of you now look back at what you had written and understand it in a different way that you're seeing it play out? <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny. Yeah. The first time this happened to me was during right. the invasion of Crimea uh -huh. in 2014, when, remember, there were these men not wearing uniforms, little marching men, yeah. at little green men, supposedly. And that was exactly what happened in eastern Poland in 1944. There were these Russian hmm. soldiers wearing Polish uniforms or no uniforms who came in and said, we're the Polish Communist Party. And, you know, I watched it happen and I, I thought, huh, gosh, I didn't realize how important the role of organized crime was in this mm -hmm. because they that's what happened in Crimea. They made links with criminals who then took over the cities one by one. And I thought, well, if I'd seen that before I wrote my book, I would have understood that this was an important element of what they did. So yes, absolutely. Seeing it happen in real life and in real time makes me think I could have written better books. Well, but again, part of you know, watching all of this is you wonder back in the 1930s with hindsight, like, why did people not see that this was happening? Why did they look the other way? You know, how was something like this possible? I think we now understand how it could happen. So let me ask you one more question about President Zelensky. And of course, nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's in the future, but you spend some time with him. He has been this extraordinary war leader. How does this end? Will he have the political and diplomatic ability to negotiate peace with the Russians? I mean, if you're President Zelensky, how do you sit down with these people who have behaved like monsters and say, okay, here's the deal? Any sense? So this is going to be a very annoying answer, but a lot depends on what happens. Yeah, in other words, no. it depends how the war ends. Yeah, that's not an answer. There's a different kind of negotiation if the Russians are in control of all of southern Ukraine. And then there's another kind of negotiation if the Russians have been expelled from Ukraine. I mean, there will be a negotiation. Something will happen. There will be an end to the war eventually. 
But whether it ends with Ukraine intact, with its own borders, with some kind of Western security guarantees, maybe with a NATO presence in Ukraine, foreign military presence in Ukraine, or whether it ends with Ukraine as a barely functional state that is at constant threat of war, those are very different outcomes. What does the term security guarantee mean, though? This is already in discussion. I mean, there, there would have to be something real. Yeah. Remember that Ukraine already got something called a security assurance. Yes, what it was. <laughs> Back in the early 1990s, there was a deal. The U.S., the U.K., and the <laughs> Russians actually signed something called the Budapest Memorandum, mm -hmm. which was Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for security assurances. And that turned out to be totally meaningless. And so there would have to be something better than that. And what exactly that is and who would give it and how it would be reinforced is all right now up in the air. But it is a topic of discussion, I promise you, both in Kiev and in Washington. No, I mean, and occasionally President Zelensky will make reference to the security assurances in the past that turned out to be, as you point out, absolutely meaningless. Ann Applebaum, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Uh, Anne is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's also a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University, and her books include Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, and the Pulitzer Prize winning Gulag, a history, most recently, Twilight of Democracy. You can read her work in the upcoming issue of The Atlantic. Thank you for listening today. But before we sign off, do you hate hearing ads on the podcast? Because I have a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again. <laughs>